Now, I want to start off with an anecdote, a quick story, if you will. Now, a few years back, I had a client that I was doing cognitive work with, and they were in their upper 70s. Now, during these sessions, we would have talks, and we talked all types of subjects. But one particular session, we had a conversation that has stuck with me ever since. Now, to keep it short, they told me that their biggest regret in life is that they never went to college. They said they had an opportunity to take some classes at a community college way back in the day, but they were kind of nervous, intimidated by it, didn't think they had what it took, and they didn't want to go off away from their hometown, so they didn't do it. Now, life went on. This person went on to have a good life. They had children, grandchildren, even great-grandchildren, but that was the biggest regret that they shared with me. Now, the point I want to bring this up is what stopped them from going to college? Was it the fact that they were just nervous? They didn't really think they had what it took? Who knows? But the point I want to get at is it came down to something we might call confidence. Now, today's topic of confidence, we're going to go into what confidence is by defining it, but also making sense of it in practical measures and how to use it or how can it affect us in our day-to-day lives. Also, some of the science and breakdowns of why confidence is important and how we can even build it up and use it in practical applications and train it just like we would our body or a muscle, right? So before we get into it, what is confidence? What do you think of when you hear that term? I know a lot of things go through people's minds and there's numerous definitions that I found, but we're going to give a few. Now, the straightforward psychology definition is basically the belief or trust in one's own abilities to carry out and be successful in their endeavors. Sounds familiar? This is probably the definition you're most likely to know. Now, I actually liked another definition. It was pretty straightforward. It's basically having a firm trust of something. Trust. Keyword trust. And firm means it's stable. You can count on it. And I think that's what confidence really is. Now, think about confidence outside of just the psychological or mental health field. Think about it in, say, statistics. Think about when you do research. I've done research studies, and what we look for is the confidence that this result can be carried over and replicated, and it makes sense in real time. So usually what we look statistically, we want to see over 50%. In some cases, you might even want to see higher, like 60, 70. But obviously, the higher the confidence is, the better likeness we can count on it to happen. And I think this has a lot of carryover to the psychological aspect of how we have the belief, the trust, the confidence that we can count when it matters the most. Now, on the other side of that, I like to look at confidence maybe as decisions. You're probably thinking, okay, decision-making, confidence. Maybe you can see the carryover. But when you really think about it, our level of confidence is going to dictate how we behave. And these behaviors are going to lay the foundation of what we do day-to-day in life, career decisions. In this case, we saw my former client, life decisions. So it makes a difference on how confident we are because it's going to dictate how we carry out certain actions. So look at it from a decision-making and trust standpoint. And if you look at it from that framework, I think it can lead us to a lot of different ways of how we can actually have the capacity to build it. Now, those who may want to build their confidence, they might want to think about how they want to learn a new skill because a lot of times we don't feel we have what it takes because they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. So you just stay in your lane and go with, once again, what you trust, what you know. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of relearning and a lot of failure to get good at something. And as humans, we're likely to be in our comfort zone. So having the confidence to try something new, whether it be a skill, whether it be an endeavor, takes a lot of work. Now, also you can look at it for starting a business or being a leader, getting different job opportunities, ending a relationship, starting a relationship. It all takes that ability to know, will this make sense for me? Will this endeavor, this decision, can I trust it? Will it go the way that I want it to go? Or will I have confidence in 
the alternative or even the negative side of things. So we want to take this into consideration. And lastly, what about mental health as a whole, regulating emotions? Am I confident in the belief that I can handle this? These stressors, these worries. We're going to talk about that later, how people handle anxiety, depression, or on the other side, how do these affect your confidence? So there's a lot that goes into this. Now, there's three terms I want to talk about. Two may be more familiar than the other, but it's self-esteem, self-worth, and self-efficacy. Do any of these three ring a bell? Does self-efficacy ring a bell? That's the one I think we should push a little bit more, but we'll get to that. Now, let's go with self-esteem and self-worth. These are probably the most used. And when it comes to self-esteem and self-worth, a lot of times they're used interchangeably that are not the same thing, but they're not also different. They're kind of related. They're under the same umbrella. But if you simply define how they differ, you can look at it as self-esteem is more so what happens to you from the result of how others perceive you and how you value yourself off of external perceptions, while self-worth is how you value yourself based off of what you believe internally. Now, you can say that some may play off the other because if you have a low value of self-worth, you don't think you're much, you'll never amount to anything. It's probably going to affect your self-esteem because the endeavors you try probably won't be the best or you won't do a lot. And people are going to look at you as a failure, a screw up, something of that nature or someone who just can't pull it all together. And vice versa, if you have low self-esteem, you don't trust others can believe in how you can carry out a task and say, oh, I feel like I'm not worth it. They don't think I can do it. Your self-worth goes down and now you don't have this capacity of thinking you matter. So I look at it as self-worth is more how you value yourself from just your existence and what you are, while self-esteem is how the world's effect and more objective implications can affect how you value yourself. So like I said, they come from the same cloth, but they're a little bit different. Now, the one I spoke about self-efficacy, this is where I think it all comes full circle. Now, there's a psychologist, Albert Bandura. This is a term that he coined. Now, self-efficacy is basically the belief in one's skill set and abilities to carry out a task or accomplish a goal and be successful. So you see where that differs. Self-worth and self-esteem were more dictated by what you appraise yourself, whether it be based off of external information or just what you think you deserve because maybe you had a bad upbringing or you weren't treated fairly in your family or you just didn't get the respect you think you deserve. But with self-efficacy, that's why I like this one so much, is dictated by how you get better at a skill or a task. And then once you get better at it or not get better at it, you can appraise where you fall. And the more self-efficacious you are, the more likely you're kind of going to do something. Now, how do you get better with your self-efficacy? Because with self-efficacy, you have to have the actual action of doing. A lot of time with self-esteem and self-worth, I might argue that they happen because we're not doing. We're just assuming. So assumptions have a role in our brain and how we make sense of the world. But sometimes those assumptions are wrong. We have these biases against ourselves. So with self-efficacy, you can still be kind of biased and maybe doubt yourself or overinflate yourself, but it comes from the act of doing. So how do we get better at these tasks or these goals or these skills? Well, you got to master them. This comes from practice. This comes from being able to carry it out and not only carrying out, if it doesn't go right, figure out where you went wrong, whether it's you assessing it yourself or even maybe having a coach to help you dictate where do I need to make a difference? Now, you also want to look at something called social modeling. This is basically just looking at other people doing what you're trying to do or successfully doing what you want to do and see where you fall. So it's not just a necessarily a comparison of saying, oh, if they're here, I'm here. It's saying if they're here, what steps, what trainings, what methodologies 
what are they doing that I can reflect in myself? Or am I doing those things? Because sometimes it gives you the reinforcement to make you feel better. Like, okay, if this top tier person in my field is going about it this way, and so am I, it gives us once again, that confidence, that trust that we're doing it the right way. And this is what it's all about. Like I said, we trust in our abilities. We'll be better able to carry things out. Now, also we look at is the actual capacity to do said skills. You don't start at square three, you start at square one. So a lot of times people get caught up on where am I at? I need to get better, but they don't even assess that they were further back than they really were. You overassess your abilities. You're going to find yourself in a bad position. Now, also, you want to be able to manage the stress when it doesn't go right. Like I said, when it goes to mastering something, being more efficient, you're going to have failures, you're going to have fallbacks, things that don't go your way, but you got to make sure that you can handle the times when they go good, you can handle the times when they go bad and bring it all together when it matters most. Now, there's something I like to call the confidence cycle. I teach this to my clients when I do my mental coaching. And the thing with the confidence cycle is think about three tiers and they all point to each other. And once you see you get one down, it just goes back and forth, around and around. And the more you do it, it's going to come together. So the first part is do it. Like I said, when you do something, it actually carries out and you can better assess if you're efficient at it. Now, the beauty of doing things is if you do things more, you tend to get better at them. So do it and then eventually get better at it. But of course, it has to be structured, but doing it, getting better. Do it, get better. Now, once you get better, guess what? You're going to want to showcase it more. You want to showcase it more, you have to do it. Do you see how it's coming full circle? Do it, get better, get better, showcase it, showcase it, do it, do it, get better. It goes round and round. And this is how we get more efficient. And this goes beyond just being confident. Now it's to the fact that I can trust in my skills because I know I do this this amount of times, I do it accurately, effectively. So we got to take that in consideration. So it's not just about doing it. It's not about just getting better. But we have to constantly go through this cycle because sometimes it's not going to go perfectly. And once again, once we can assess it and get better, we can go forward. Now, we can segue this into how personality comes into this, because we talk about being confident. There's a few personality traits that definitely go hand in hand, and there's others that kind of carry over as well. So we look at, say, openness, experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So those are the big five factor, right? So let's look at neuroticism. I'm start with that one because neuroticism is associated with negative thoughts, negative behaviors, your perception of stressors, and a light that means you cannot overcome. You're more likely to give up when things go hard. You're more likely to worry when it's not even that bad. So you can see how this goes hand in hand with confidence. So you want to be low on neuroticism because the higher you are, the more likely you're going to assess situations as bad. Being anxious and anxiety aren't the problem. It's about how do you let it affect your disposition, your behaviors thereafter. And someone who's high on neuroticism is going to do that. So it's hard to build your confidence up because we look at confidence as this, this finite thing. Like you, you see it as like a, you either have it or you don't. Look at it more like, say, in video games, right? Like, say, Mortal Kombat as a health bar. The health bar is here. As you get through your day-to-day, -day, things that don't go your way, you get some adversity. It goes down a little bit, little, little by little. But guess what? What happens in the video game? It can be replenished and goes down again. It can be replenished. Sometimes you get a, a flawless victory and doesn't get hurt at all, but that's not every day. So just how confidence is, you have to replenish that bar. So understanding these factors will help you be able to do that. Now, going over to agreeableness. Now, the reason I think this is important for someone to build confidence because you have to be open and you have to be able to go with things that may not be what you directly want to do. A confident person is a risk taker to some degree. 
Now, agreeable people, not necessarily risk takers per se, that's more of extroversion. We'll get to that. But an agreeable person will at least be open to other ideas. If I'm confident, I'll be able to say I can compete with opposing ideas because I know what I'm doing is correct. But even if it isn't, guess what? Now you have learned something. So that's why agreeableness is important. Now, if we look at extroversion, this is probably the biggest one to go with confidence because you think about extroversion, people always think the life of the party or social. But what extroversion really is, is your ability to adapt in social settings. A person who can carry themselves well amongst others has to have some degree of confidence. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be on every scene or the life of the party. I personally am very introverted, but I know how to turn it on when I need to. And that's why it's important to understand where you fall. If you know you're an introverted person, that means you have to put more effort, more intent in what you do when it's time to turn it on. There's one subfacet called social self-esteem in the hexaco model of personality and it talks about how someone is confident in social situations. That's just that. So you can be introverted, meaning you're not on the scene, you're more involved in the depth of a, a object or a depth of a situation rather than the, the breath, meaning what you're doing amongst others. You want to get deep into it. You can be that. But social self-esteem shows you that you're able to step up and socialize when it makes sense. Networking, business, work, sport. Or there's another one called social boldness. Now, social boldness, this deals with being able to lead groups, take charge. Once again, you can see how these go hand in hand. Now, we look at conscientiousness. This is a big one because conscientiousness deals with goal setting, planning, being diligent, staying true to what you're doing. A person who's confident, they're going to be able to stay focused even when things don't go their way. This kind of covers over with mental toughness, and I talk about that a lot. So a conscientious person, they're going to stay true to their goals and endeavors. Now, also with goals, they're going to plan things out. And I'm going to get to this in a little bit. We talk about how planning things out will help you be more confident. Now, the last one we'll talk about is openness to experience. So like agreeableness, that's more so I can take in new information from opposing views. But openness to experience, you might be more uh, akin to wanting to do abstract ideas, things that are out of the box. Sometimes confidence trying new things things that you maybe never wanted to do or you did want to do, but you didn't want to do it alone or you didn't want to do it by yourself. Whatever it is, having openness is the ability to be able to carry out different tasks or endeavors and step out of your comfort zone. So that's why these different personality traits can play into how you be confident. Now, going all into that, what we already heard, where does mental health come into this picture? Because people talk about mental health a lot these days. They talk about how people are depressed, anxious, stressed out. We report higher levels in stress every year. Every year, that number skyrockets. And it's getting even higher in younger populations. You're now getting teens. You're now getting kids even saying they're stressed out. They're dealing with pressures, anxiety, school, life, work, relationships, whatever it may be. So when you talk about confidence, you can ask, is it an inverse correlation? One goes up, the other goes down? Possibly, because you can say if you're lacking confidence, you could be more susceptible to depression or anxiety. But if you're anxious or depressed, you're probably not going to be too confident, too. Because when we look at, say, depression, for example, it deals with a lot of lethargy, rumination, meaning focusing on unhelpful thoughts, things that make you worry, doubt yourself, put yourself worth, your self-value lower, thinking that you're not enough. That person is going to be hard to get their confidence up, even if they want to try. Because a lot of times people get caught up on depression being, hey, just feel better. We can go into the neurochemical side, of course. We can go into the psychological side, of course. But the point is, is not that simple. And even if you want to try, a lot of people who are in that point, they do try, 
but it's hard to keep pushing yourself when you get defeated and you feel like they can't get better. Because it's like I said, it's a cycle. They're going back to the confidence cycle. They need to get better to do it. And they have to do it to get better. And then they can't showcase amongst others if they're not doing it. And a person who's depressed typically is to themselves. Or if they're not to themselves, they're not going to act in the same manner. They're going to be different in different social situations. So you got to take that all into consideration, into account. Now, going to anxiety, anxiety is a little bit different, but it still has the same ramifications in a sense, because with anxiety, you're predicting these different outcomes of what if it goes wrong? What if it goes this way? What if I can't? Oh, my gosh, I can't handle all this pressure. But guess what? Confidence is not going to be very present there either, because if you're worrying from a cognitive standpoint, the load is too much on the thought in the moment. You're not looking down the future and figuring out what's the better outcome, the better solution, or vice versa. You're looking down to the outcomes and solutions, but they're all not helpful or beneficial. And guess what? In that moment, the confidence goes down. So handling stress and depression and anxiety is going to come down to a point where you have to be able to stop yourself in that moment and say, where am I really at? How does this make sense? And can I overcome it? The first step is, can I overcome it? And this probably segues perfectly to this next part. Let's look at how do we apply confidence? How does this make sense in real time? Now, first thing you got to ask yourself is be realistic. And this means assessing where are you? Are you the type of person you know that it takes a lot of work and effort to really try? Things don't may come as easy to you as some people might say. Then you have to take that into account. Now, there's other people who it may come easier. They seem like naturals, but there's no such thing as a true natural. There's always work involved. But the point is, they typically have more confidence because they're reinforced that, oh, you're such a natural. You just get things done. Guess what? It goes to that self-esteem, affects that self-worth. And if they're doing more, that's going to help their self-efficacy. But going to the point of being realistic, if you are low, be there. It might sound kind of productive, like, why would I want to be low on it? It's not that you want to be low. It's the fact that you need to understand if you're here, you can only get better once you know where you're started. If you start from a disingenuous point, you're not going to be able to truly see your progress. Now, going on to the other side of the spectrum, people who are very confident. Now, let's see even be border on the line of false confidence because there's two ends of that spectrum. There's people who are overly confident, false confidence, and there's people that don't have any confidence or very low confidence, I should say. And the thing is, the, the spectrum there, person who's overly confident to the point where it becomes false or pseudo confidence, fake it till you make it can only go so far. I get the logic of fake it till you make it because it does help. That does help to an extent because you're putting yourself in those situations. You're putting yourself in the ability to cope and adapt. But the problem with that is you can't fake your way forever. Now, I would rather have someone with low confidence to moderate confidence than someone who's overconfident or pseudo confident. Because when I work with these people, what happens is hard for me to help them get to their problems because they're not being real with themselves. How can I help them if they can't even help themselves first and say that, hey, I'm really not here. I have a lot of things going on that's really bringing me down. I would argue the person with low confidence that can admit it as well can do a lot more work because now they know I have work to do and to improve. A person who's lying to themselves can't do that. Now, it doesn't mean they have no confidence if they're overly confident or pseudo-confident. It just means that they're not giving a good starting point and you can't get better from starting from there. Now, we get into like some cognitive bias I talk about. There's one called the Dunning-Kruger effect because you might ask, how does it even happen when someone so much over assesses their level of confidence or ability. Now, uh, Justin Kruger and David Dunning had a study in the early 2000s. I think it was either 1999, 2000. And basically they saw in their classes, they gave their tests to their students. And they asked them upon leaving, how do you think you fared amongst the majority? So they would give a percentage. So they saw that people who did mediocre average 
rate themselves in the upper percentile while people who did decent rate themselves in the mediocre average percentile. So why does this happen? Why do people overassess their abilities when they're not good? People underassess their abilities when they are good. Well, this is because in our brains, we think about it is we only know our best level of understanding. So let me give you an analogy. Let's say there's a JV basketball player. He's 6'5". That's extremely tall for, say, a ninth grader. And he's actually pretty good. He's dominating on the courts. And he gets more up to varsity. And he still does pretty well because 6'5 is still pretty big for a high schooler of a ninth, 10th grade age. And basically, he knows he's the best. So guess what happens? He gets that understanding that this is how good I am, but it's at that level. That's a lower level. Now, take someone from the NBA to get to that level. They have to obviously have confidence and think highly of themselves, but they know there's thousands of other players that are just as good and some even better. So they have to look at it objectively and say, where do I need to improve? So what happens is they start undermining their own skill, even though they are the best. They start undermining their own skill and saying, if, if I could do it, so could they. So they start estimating other people just as good as them because they understand the intricacies and the work that goes into it. They know how much practice goes into getting to a high level. Because if you put that JV person in the NBA, they're not going to hold their own because they don't realize that, hey, I'm not that good compared to the bigger picture. And that's what happens with the Dunning-Kruger effect. And this kind of segues into another kind of bias called illusory superiority bias. So a lot of times people overestimate their abilities, not in a detrimental way that can really harm them or make them mess up, but they do it in a way where they just think they're better than others because by second nature, we're going to appraise our abilities better because we have to have the confidence because if you look at survival mechanisms, you have to overestimate if you were going to able to make it this far walking or take down a bigger prey that you're hunting. And we grew through to say, if I'm better than this and I fall short, at least I've made it. So this is actually beneficial to a degree, but the problem is if it goes too far because there has been studies where they saw where in the 60s and 70s, they would ask college students how they rate themselves and their confidence in their writing abilities, math, and just overall being a per good person. They said about the 60%, give or take, would rate themselves above average. You can see there's slightly a problem because if someone's saying there's 60% of the people are above average, that doesn't make sense. Only about 50% can be that because average is the middle ground they're at. Now, they did another study more recently, and they saw that number went up to the 80 to 90 percentile. There's other factors we might talk about where that might be why that's happening in social media, but won't get there just yet. But we can see how this may play a factor. Now, let's look at ways on how you could gain confidence. Now, first, what I'm going to say is plan. I mentioned conscientiousness. These are goal-oriented people. But the reason why planning things out is good is because a person with a plan, they account for what could happen. And if you plan well, you also account for what may not happen. So you're accommodating both sides. When we talk about anxiety, stress, and worry, it's usually because we're anticipating all these outcomes, but we never anticipate how we're going to address them. We just see the problem. We see no solutions or very few solutions. So if you have a plan, at least gives you the idea, going back to that point of trust. Okay, if I know if this doesn't work, plan A, I trust that I have B and C just in case. So I have something to fall back on because the fear is usually within the unknown. We're, we're usually confident when we know things, but we can't know everything but we at least can mitigate some of the risk and try to account for the things we can't see ahead of time. Also, we can look at fitness. People always talk about how working out is good for the brain, good for the mind, obviously good for the body, but why would it be good for the body? Let's think about just the simple fact of you're putting yourself under pressure, under stress, whether it be running, lifting weights, jumping, and then you have to accommodate that. You get a little sore, the muscle rebuild when you rest and recover, and you do it again. 
So you're repeating the cycle of adversity, stressor, overcome, do it again. Adversity, stressor, what does that sound like? The confidence cycle. So you see how this keeps coming full circle. So that self-efficacy, you get more confident in the belief that you can get better shape because now you're seeing results. Now, granted, results won't always come, but this is also why fitness is good because they won't always come. So your brain is getting that reinforcement that if you work hard, you will get results. But sometimes you work hard, you won't get results or it'll be a slower result. So you're indirectly training the brain, training the body to accommodate resistance and stressors, but also reinforcing how the brain factors in how we need to overcome that. Also, when you're doing these fitness, try to do your goals, set them to a reasonable level, but also put it to a point where you know you can overcome it, but also it's straining enough that it's just barely there. The best programs look at the top strength coaches. They're able to accommodate resistance and have that adjustment and adaptability to change and auto-regulate their programs so the client or the lifter, whoever, can get better to the best of their abilities because they know when to tweak it. And the same thing when you're doing fitness to get more confident. You can't just do what you know every day. When I used to work in the fitness industry, I would see gym goers do the same three or four exercises with the same weights or the same miles per hour on the treadmill, whatever it is, they do it over and over. Granted, they got the success that they accomplished the workout, but they did something they knew they could do. They could trust they could finish that workout. But the problem with this is, one, your muscles are adapted. So while you get the actual sweat or fatigue from doing it, because people say, I sweated or I felt sore, there's a difference between working and working hard. You're just working. Your body has to exert energy. The ATP has to break down. That's happening no matter what. But to accommodate, that stressor is not enough. So going to the point, you have to change up the, the workout routine, whether there is adding more intensity, resistance, adding more duration, changing angles or whatever it is to the exercises. So fitness is a great tool and people utilize it, of course, but just know why it's beneficial. And there's obviously neurochemical responses to that. There's also testosterone. You can get a daddy even how that helps with confidence. But the last one I would say is put yourself in social settings. So going back to that extroversion tier. Social settings require you to adapt in real time because people who stay to themselves, what's the one constant about that? You're always you. You know what comes out of your brain. So you can't really get surprised by much. Even if you like watch things, yeah, you're getting exposed to other thinking or other mindsets, but it's not the same as being in a real time situation because that requires something called working memory. If you're not familiar with that, that's our ability to hold information short term in real time and manipulate it to be able to relay it back before from our long term to our short term to make sense of our environment. In the case of social situations, this is people, this is places, this is the settings around you. So you have to adapt quickly. So that's why being in social situations are good because it's going to help this working memory capacity because everything you're hearing me say is recorded so you can stop it, play it back again. But in a real time conversation, you don't have that ability. This is where social awkwardness kind of comes in. I talked about this with uh, Dr. Tai Tashiro, but basically you're taking in real time information you have to make sense. And that cognitive flexibility, that problem solving, that being able to be around people that may not be someone you want to be around. You have to do that. And this is how you build that trust and confidence that you can adapt and adjust. So being in social situations for the most part will put you in an unpredictable field in a manner where you have to carry out things that may not be in your control. But it will also make you have to use the parts of the brains where you're using this working memory, this capacity to be able to take in real time information. So these are just three things. It's not an exhaustive list at all, but those are just three things that can help you gain some confidence. But what about things that can help you lose confidence? OK, what about doing more than you can handle? 
I know we live in a modern society where it's go, go, go. And I'm guilty of this to my own extent, but doing more you can handle. You know what the problem with this is? You do a lot, yes, but there's always going to be something that doesn't get finished. And think about how you're relaying to your brain that, okay, I take out 10 tasks. I do five of them. You got five things done. That's pretty good. But the problem is those other five might not have been even that important. So now your brain's getting the reinforcement that you failed because five out of 10 for most people is a failure, depending on what it is. Baseball, that's amazing. It's a record. But for most people, they feel like they didn't do enough. So why I say don't take on more than you can handle because now you're seeing this reinforcement. Oh, I didn't get this done. And you do that constantly day in, day out. It's going to become ingrained that you just can't get it right. And you think, I don't get anything done. Is it that you didn't get anything done? Or is the fact that you, you gave so much bandwidth that you couldn't possibly finish? Now let's change that 10. It doesn't have to be five. You want to be five out of five. Cool. But you could say six or seven things. Now you got six out of seven, five out of seven, even four out of seven. That's still more than five out of 10. So now it seems that you're more efficient. You don't feel like you let anyone down or let anything down. And you might actually let people down because when you can't get to everything, if it is high priority, something or someone's going to be left hanging. So that's one thing that easily lose confidence by taking on more than you can do. Also, by doing things that are too out of your league. So this kind of piggybacks off the previous one, but doing things that are out of your league. If you're going, I like these sports analogies. So if you try to do a marathon, I see a lot of people get into running in their 20s and 30s to get back in shape. That's great. I'm all for it. I'm a sprinter myself, so I'm not big on the long, long distance. But a marathon is 26.2 miles. If you're not in, you don't have to be peak, peak shape, but if you haven't been that physically active in years, maybe start with a 3K. Or better yet, maybe start with just walking a mile a day. Just walk every single day. And what's happening, you're getting that feedback system from a neuroscience standpoint, that dopamine, a lot of times we get this rush of dopamine, the motivator, because a lot of times it's looked at as a reward slash pleasure, but it's more of a motivator too, because that reward makes you want to do it again. But if there's these gaps on what you want to do and what you're actually doing, it's going to get less and less because it's going to say, why are we still wasting time on this? The brain is pretty amoral. It takes this feedback that you're giving it from your actions. Remember, your actions dictate a lot of this thing. And all this goes to the decisions you make. So try not to take on more than you can handle as well as do something out of your league. Just do it to the degree that you know or are physically capable of doing it. That way you can build up that stability and reinforcement when you just gradually improve. And if you need to make a big jump, make the big jump. Sometimes you can make the big jump because you're like, you know what? This has been too easy. Let me take it up a notch. So take that in consideration. Now, from a neuroscience standpoint, like I briefly said something about that, we talk about like dopamine, talk about serotonin, oxytocin, even uh, testosterone. I know that's a hormone, but we look at, say, dopamine. Once again, this is the neurotransmitter that's more so for reinforcing behaviors. People talk about the pleasure or the reward, and it is because with that reward, that's the feedback to say, do it again. We go to ancient times, we look at survival. If you took certain steps to procure meat, food, hunting, gathering, the brain would say, good, we needed that. That hunger we had is gone. We need to fulfill that again, and it's going to peak our interest or peak our behaviors to keep that going. And the same thing with your confidence. If you're doing things that are diminishing it and you're not getting enough dopamine from the point of I'm doing these goals or in these endeavors that are extremely hard to do, you need to do hard things. But if it's to the point of failure that you can't just get anything done, it's not helping anyone. There's a, a good ebb and flow of balance to that. 
Think of it like a mountain or a peak. You can't just start at the top. There's a little valley you have to go up and then you kind of stop and you go up and you kind of stop and you go up and you come down. And that's how it should go because there's going to be days when you go up, go up, go up and you go down and some days you go just down. But when it's always down, guess what? Your brain's going to be reinforced that why are we doing this? Now we talk about say oxytocin or serotonin. So oxytocin, we're getting to more so that they call it the love hormone, right? It's released an abundance, special uh, new mothers. But the point of this is if we feel attached to the endeavor, so dopamine's giving the behavior to reciprocate the endeavor. And then oxytocin is like, oh, I want to do this. Because a lot of times people negate the fact that being confident is also caring about the process, wanting to do what you're doing. It's hard to be confident in something you don't care about. If I say, go do an unrelated topic that you have no interest in, tell me how much you'll get done. Tell me how far you'll go with it. Probably not that far. So this is where oxytocin comes in when it comes to that. Now, with serotonin, this is mood regulation. Going all in hand in hand, you're not always going to want to do it. There's going to be some times when you feel on top of the world, unstoppable. There's going to be times when you, you feel like, what's the point? So these, these moderations of behavior that you do, like I said, with the working out or taking on new endeavors or trying social situations more, these are all going to work these different neurochemicals in different degrees, right? So you look at it like that. It's not just this button we can press. It takes our actual endeavors, our actual behaviors to execute and accomplish this. So that's what we got to take into consideration. Now, have you ever thought about why am I here? So this is coming back all around because going back to the point of why are people confident or lack thereof? Now, there's sometimes you are confident or you know what you're doing. You know you're the best or one of the best what you do. But what happens when you think, why am I here? Was it luck? This goes kind of back to the Dunning-Kruger effect. The person who's high skilled, they're going to question it more. But this goes to a point where it gets too high, you question it, it becomes something called imposter syndrome. And if you're familiar with this, is you're basically feeling like you don't belong. Like you negate the control of why you got there, usually to external factors. We talk about locus control. Internal is like what you definitely control. External is what you don't control. Typically, people who have imposter syndrome, they put all the positive aspects of their endeavors or their goals or their success on the external factors. Oh, I was just in the right place at the right time. Oh, I got lucky. Oh, I just met the right person. Or they'll just give the credit to a loved one like, oh, I couldn't have done it without her. And those could be true. But if you put it all in that, that negates that fact that you played a role in that. And then you put all the negative factors off of how they got to their success or their endeavors on themselves, just themselves. Yeah, but even though I got to this point, I made so many mistakes and I failed so many times. And if it wasn't for those other outside factors, I wouldn't be here. See the problem with that? Now, imposter syndrome is not 100% a bad thing. Because think about it. If you're questioning all of this, that means you've gotten to the point where you know you've reached a high pinnacle. But sometimes you got to say, hey, what am I doing? And then going back to the self-efficacy argument, if you have imposter syndrome, you're probably going to look at other people doing what you're doing and you're going to compare yourself to them. Only problem is when it goes too far and say, oh, they're way better than me. And it's, it's for reasons that are frivolous or arbitrary that don't matter. This is a problem. But it at least shows that you realize that you can get better. You can keep trying. So there is a kind of upside to imposter syndrome because if you can recognize there is room for improvement, you can get better and increase what you're doing. But you just got to fall back on the fact that it's not because of your doing and all those external outside factors like luck or friends or the right time, right place aren't why you're there. You're there because of you. So this is what you want to take away from imposter syndrome. Now, on the complete opposite side of that spectrum, some people talk about like narcissism. That word narcissist or narcissism gets thrown out a lot. From a clinical standpoint, there's NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, which is not what most of these people are talking about. 
Just talking about just the trait, the subclinical description of someone who might be full of themselves, have a God complex, think the world revolves around them. And this goes on that side of not just pseudo-confidence, this is problematic because why would a person want to self-improve if they think they're already the best? If they think the world revolves around them, they're solipsistic, meaning that they don't really have a view outside of them. A confident person has to understand that they're not always going to be the best. That's probably the biggest part of having trust. You can only trust something when you know that it might not happen, right? That all builds upon it. So someone who has narcissistic traits or tendencies, they're going to negate the fact that the work that goes into being good, because some people that are good are narcissistic. Some people think it's always the people who can't get it done. Sometimes there's people who are amazing, excellent, that have narcissistic traits. And sometimes people who are great people who are nice, kind, that still do too. It's just a matter of how do they put themselves in the view of, did I earn this? Do people need to praise me for this? Because a confident person doesn't necessarily need to be praised. Because once again, they trust in their own abilities. No one needs to tell me. That's the external stuff that, while it's helpful and it can help us, is not needed. So a person who's high on narcissism or narcissistic is not going to be in this, this tiered, I wouldn't call them confidence. And most people can snuff that out because they carry themselves in a way where people feel or they feel that people should be entitled to their presence or the fact that they're helping or doing their thing. Now, there's even studies and arguments of, are we more narcissistic now? And I would say maybe so, but there's a lot of things, I guess, in place to help that. You know, we have social media and it's not just the clear cut things people say when they bring up social media. People say, oh, well, people taking selfies all the time. You're always showing your space. I don't even think that's the problem when it comes to, say, narcissistic traits when it comes to social media. I think it's the fact that it's a low threshold of reward. Going back to that dopamine, if you post a picture or a video of doing something very simple, mundane that anyone can do, but you get 5,000 likes, 20,000 views, 100,000 views, thousands of followers, you're going to think, hey, this must be good. Once again, that behavior is reinforced. Do it again. You upload another video picture that might be mundane. The reinforcements telling you your self-esteem that, hey, you're good. Your self-efficacy is being kind of clouded because there was low barrier of entry to doing those tasks. And I think that's where the social media problem comes in. Not necessarily taking pictures and being full of yourself. It's just that the feedback, the dopaminergic response is getting inflated to the max because there's people who have very quality content that takes a lot of time to prepare and they get no likes, no views, barely an interaction. How do you think that makes them feel? Now you got self-esteem issues. Now you have self-doubt. And both are a problem. Both sides. No one talks about that side of the spectrum. We always talk about how high people are on their likes and views and they're not even that great at what they do or they don't really do anything at all. But what about the people who do do great, do do amazing things, game-changing things, things that has a high barrier of entry that most people can't do? They get barely any interaction. Imagine how they feel. So you can see how the imposter syndrome could come in. You can also see how the narcissistic tendencies can come in. So it's a lot to think about because confidence I said, it's like a health bar in a video game. It can go up, it can go down. So it's not all about do you have it or you don't. It's about where you are, what's your default mode. Like I said, you got to assess it. You know, if you're low, moderate, high, overly confident, wherever you are, you got to assess it and then go back from there. But to wrap things up, I want to give you three things you can do right now. Take home from this and you can add it to your day-to-day -day routine immediately to help with your confidence. Doesn't require anything special. I know you guys might've seen my work. Doesn't require any of that stuff. You can do it right now. So the first one might seem kind of funny or goofy, but I want you to use your non-dominant hand. Now, if you have a lot to do today or whenever you see this, don't do it at work or something that's very important. 
Try to do it as much as you can, though. Do it for not just writing, also handing things over, drinking, whatever it is. Try to use your non-dominant hand as much as possible. And the reason I want this is multiple. One, because it's different. You're doing something out of your norm. You're changing up the status quo. But also, you're going to feel awkward. You're going to feel goofy. And that's what confidence is about, right? Putting yourself in situations where you may not be the best, but building upon it. You might write sloppy with your left. And probably not going to get perfect and legible, or at least make it somewhat legible, but make it better every time you write. Okay? So that's the first one. Now, the second one, I want you to showcase a skill to an audience. Now, audience is subjective. Like, that could be 10 people. could be three people at your house. Could be the world, put it on social media. That's up to you. But showcase that skill because this is putting you in that social scenario where you have to understand am I good here? Can I get better? Because now it's forcing you to be in front of people. Now, the last one is something we call personal achievement reminders. These are three things I want you to recall from your past to remind you that you have done things of note, whether it be big or small, but you have done them. So think about those three things. I don't care what they are. Remind yourself that you've overcame a tough time. Or you made something that was extraordinary, at least to you, maybe to the world. Maybe you want an employee of the month, employee of the year. Maybe you were the president of some club. Whatever it is, remind yourself of that. All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. As always, I enjoyed this episode, breaking this down. If you have any questions, make sure you follow me on social media. Like, comment, and subscribe on this video. I'll leave you with this. Every day is a personal record. And fitness, a PR or PB personal best, is the record you beat on your lift, your run, whatever it may be. And every day is that. You know why? It's because it's another day you have. And while you may not win every day, it's literally another day you have extra to all the other days you've made it through. So it's not to be happy-go-lucky like you automatically win because you made it to this day, but at least get you the chance to keep going and to get your mind right.